The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Setting Our Sights on Improved Outcomes in Glioblastoma, State-of-the-Art Care with Tumor-Treating Fields and Other Innovative Approaches. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash YNM860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome. Uh, it's a great privilege to uh, serve as the moderator for this program, and uh, we have some great speakers I'll be introducing, and I just want to give a little overview to start. Today, we're going to look at some of the uh, opportunities for improved outcomes in glioblastoma, uh, and I'm going to present some of the issues that we have, and... Soraya Joplin is going to talk about tumor treating fields and its potential impact in improving outcomes. And Mami Alwalia is going to talk about uh, the landscape in immuno-oncology and targeted tumor uh, therapy. So if we look at uh, glioblastoma, uh, look at the five-year relative survival. Obviously, the upper left... uh, it is linked to age. Treatment goals are both systemic and local. Local, we know uh, surgery, radiation, stereotactic radiosurgery, and tumor treating fields are designed to prevent the recurrence, which is almost inevitable, and which 80 to 90% of the time is in the same uh, site, surgical resection bed. The ultimate control is chemotherapy, biological therapy, uh, immunotherapy, and I, I may have some a few moments at the end to discuss a trial that was just published today, and targeted therapy. Glioblastoma presents extraordinary challenges due to this localization of tumors in the brain, and the seminar this morning uh, in the educational section show the intimate relationship of the glia, the neurons, and the uh, difficulty of uh, the problems presented by the invasion and infiltration within the brain. There's also well-known problems of angiogenesis, disruption of capillaries, leakage, and edema, as well as the limited capacity of the brain uh, to repair itself and the concerns of uh, neurotoxicity, as well as many escape mechanisms, stem cells, and so on. So uh, it's quite a formidable challenge. In terms of, um, there's also a disconnect between uh, laboratory and the clinic and the clinic and uh, full application of all of the weapons we have. So tumor treating fields, for example, was FDA approved 11 years ago uh, and by many considered uh, standard of care, yet it's low penetration in the clinic, uh, between 3 and 12% of those with newly diagnosed and um, about 10% of those with recurrent disease uh, are given this uh, treatment. And uh, so soon, uh, Dr. Giopolin will discuss that problem in detail. And uh, Dr. Awalia, who is a real authority on clinical trials, will discuss practice guidelines as they are recommended. And we now know there's a clinical trial effect, that just by being on a clinical trial itself, even if the agent ultimately is proved to be ineffective, just by being on a clinical trial can increase survival. Despite that, fewer than 11% of patients with glioblastoma are on clinical trials. And 
We're going to uh, begin this session with the American Brain Tumor Association's introduction of a patient named Eric, who's describing what it was like to learn that he had glioblastoma. We're trying to make that day when you find out you have a glioblastoma not the worst day of your life, but a day full of hope. So uh, will you roll the movie? Thank you, Peerview, for inviting the American Brain Tumor Association to participate in this impactful program once again this year. My name is Umbreen Mon, Program Manager at the ABTA, and today I have with me Eric, who will be sharing his experience and insight as a brain tumor patient. Thank you so much for joining us today, Eric. To get us started, can you tell me a little bit more about your diagnosis and what it was like hearing for the first time that you have a brain tumor? April of 2020, um, we learned that there was a brain tumor and we had to find a hospital that still had capacity to perform urgent surgery that was able to do a craniotomy. The first real knowledge that this was glioblastoma occurred when we had an in-person meeting with the surgeon a few weeks after the surgery. And by then, pathology came back with glioblastoma and with all the markers, um, which really did not sink into my head at that time at all. And we were advised that it was a life-shortening situation. Um, and he did not really delve into the mortality rates, just leaving it that, uh, you know, we, we could be looking at something as uh, uh, short as five years. Um, it wasn't later that we learned that statistically uh, it was in a single digit percentage that made it to five years. So how did all this impact us was um, actually quite, it, it was as good as it could be expected because it was given to us in increments instead of all at once, but it wasn't spread out over and over long period of time. It was given to us as we could handle it. Um, but the, that phrase life shortening was very helpful to help us, help me, help my wife start processing the significance of this lightning strike that just hit us. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here uh, today and uh, talk to it, all of you about uh, uh, this uh, treatment um, uh, 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 about uh, basically integrating innovative multimodal approaches into glioblastoma care. So I'm going to try and give you the latest evidence and guidelines for tumor treating fields. Um, let's see here. So I'd like to start off with the survival curves. All right. This is from Dama Dubhart, and she was a neuropathologist at the Mayo Clinic, and this is from 1988. And this is the survival that all of our patients will have with radiation and surgery. So if you just do radiation and surgery, your two-year survival is going to be about 5%, and your five-year survival is going to be basically zero. And I even saw a question right now that popped up on our uh, question list, is what have, why have we impacted the survival so little in 50 years? And I'm going to say that is a complete fallacy and unfortunately a misunderstanding of what we actually have done. And there's actually been in, in huge improvements of both the two-year and five-year survival quotas. And I'm going to discuss this with the next thing, but keep your eye on this, uh, keep this in your memory, uh, this survival curve. 
This, everyone in the new room is very familiar with. This is the enemy, right? You got this large left temporal, centrally necrotic. This is the part of the tumor that's outstripped its blood supply and is as dead. And then you have the advancing rim of the tumor, which is the contrast enhancement. But we all know that this is just the tip of the iceberg. If you look at the flare imaging, the tumor is already invaded through the entire left hemisphere, and it's starting to cross over into the right. In the 1950s, before there was IRBs, the neurosurgeons would biopsy the other side of the brain, and we'd find glioma cells on the other side of the brain. So the time of diagnosis, this disease is throughout the brain. The horse is already out of the barn, running away, and we're trying to drag it back in and get it under control. And that is our challenge, and that's why the survival curves basically looked the way it did in the 80s. The, uh, the guy, the man, the gentleman, that, the doctor that ran the, the four-minute mile, really, in, in, um, in neuro-oncology is Roger Stoop, and this was published in 2005, and it has become the standard of care throughout the world, that where he added on temozolomide, as you all know, which is an alkylating agent, and it's supposed to enhance the effect of radiation, and then he gave it in the adjuvant setting for six months. And for the first time, you saw this doubling of the two-year survival up to about 25%. And then we had five-year patients that lived out five years or more. And that had never been seen before. So those, the survival curves have now been moved forward. His second, so you can call it STUP 2.0, STUP squared. His second follow-up trial, which was actually in 2015, was looking at tumor-treating fields. Tumor-treating fields actually goes back many years. They have both in vivo and in vitro data going back to the 1990s. In 2004, they did the first um, uh, uh, trial, pilot trial in humans. Then they did the recurrent GBM trial, which they received FDA approval for. In 2015, they did the newly diagnosed GBM trial, which they also uh, obtained uh, um, FDA approval for. And then they went to systemic cancers. They're not sitting on the laurels. And they uh, got FDA approval for mesothelioma. And now they have many trials going on in, in different other solid tumors systemically. Uh, this, these, the results in CNS disease led in 2018 to a Category 1 designation by the NCCN, the National Cancer Comprehensive Network, were based on the five-year survivals, it began. Uh, it, be, it is now recommended for both methylated or unmethylated patients in combination with standard radiation as well as concurrent temozolomide. And not only is it uh, recommended for those that patient population, but as I tell all my residents, my fellows, and my other trainees, don't be an ageist because this was actually shown to work in patients over the age of seventy uh, as well. So I always try and gear the, the treatment to the patient. If somebody it looks good and looks like they can tolerate treatment, then definitely offer them everything that can help them. So I'm going to introduce you now to tumor treating fields because pe people always come up to me, even now that, that it's been you know FDA approved since 2015 and it's seven years later, people are still somewhat confused as to the mechanism of action. So you have to go back to basically your high school biology. And this is what I tell patients. Remember mitosis, right? And what happens in mitosis, DNA has double. The microtubule spindles have formed. They drag DNA to the center of the cell. The cleavage for, uh, it forms. The cell divides into two. 
and the daughter cells take half the amount of DNA into them, and therefore you get replication. In with an alternating electrical field, what you have is the all proteins have a charge, as you know. The alternating electrical field basically acts on these proteins, and they're not, they just basically are not able to move very well in the cell as they're getting dragged in either direction. The microtubules do not form. The DNA does not get brought to the center of the cell. The cleavage formation also doesn't happen because that's protein-mediated. The cell does not divide into two. There's a double dose of DNA in the cell. That, that is a lethal event for the cell, so the cell under, uh, undergoes apoptosis and then dies. And why was this started off in the brain first? Because if you remember, and we all know this as neurologists or you know, people who treat patients with brain disease, is that everything in the cell is in G0, the resting state. Nothing should be undergoing division. So this is, was a very targeted therapy for the brain. And this is one of the reasons that they went forward with the um, trial first in the brain. The only cells that die are the ones that are attempting to undergo mitosis and divide. However, this is an electrical field, right? And you can tune the electrical field based on voltage. You can tune it based on frequency. And it was seen that when they looked at cell kill in in vitro studies, that the effects on the cells are frequency-specific, all right, and inversely related to cell size. So a glioblastoma tends to be a smaller cell, so it needed a higher frequency of cell kill, about 200 kilohertz. Uh, Non-small cell lung cancer and breast cancer and pancreatic cancer are slightly bigger, so they need a slightly lower frequency of cell kill. But the normal intestine... It, cell kill is more at 50 kilohertz. So you can understand, then, therefore, you can treat systemic disease and specifically target the cells, um, the cancer cells, with leaving, uh, with protecting um, the normal tissue. And that is how the company has moved into trials uh, with using uh, the device in systemic cancer, too, as well. So this is what it looks like. So I've heard many myths about this device. Oh, it weighs 30 pounds. Oh, it weighs 8 pounds. It never weighed any of those. In the original trial, it weighed about 6 pounds. Now we have version 2.0, basically weighs about 2.5 pounds. So I tell my patients, you've basically moved from your Dell laptop to your MacBook Air. And that's what you're um, carrying around. I tell ladies, if you think about what you're carrying around in your, in your purse, it's probably much more, it's much heavier than this actual device. And this is what it is. So the patients wear their rays. The rays are made by 3M, the company. They wear them front, back, and right, left. There are nine ceramic electrodes that are embedded in a conductive jelly, and it's connected up to the device that it holds both the battery as well as the computer. And that computer tells us exactly, because it, it, it comes on and it, it records when the circuit is completed. So we know exactly how much the patient is using it, and we get reports every month. They're using it 50% of the time, 12 hours a day. They're using it 75% of the time, 18 hours a day. So even in the clinical trial, the company had very accurate assessment of how much people are actually using the device. And this is unlike when you think about pills that you give people in clinical trials where you give them a bottle, you give them a calendar diary and tell them to record. Well, who knows how they're doing it and if they're recording it directly, correctly. But in this case, we knew how they did it. 
Um, the other thing that um, that is um, possible with this is you can arrange the rays on the on the surface of the brain so it targets a quadrant of the brain. And as if all of you know, 90% of the time when a GBM, a glioblastoma comes back, it comes back within two centimeters of the resection cavity. So this is an area of high risk and you can target the array to treat that area of high risk. And we now have postdoc analysis, which I will discuss later in my presentation, that confirm that the areas that got the higher dose, actually you saw tumor regression. Um, and, and I will discuss that in a, in a couple of slides. So now I'm going to discuss clinical data in newly diagnosed GBMs. So this is the EF14 trial. It was a very simple two-to-one randomization. There's, again, a lot of mythology that happened with this trial, but I'm going to try and explain it to you. Everybody got the standard strip regimen. They did their six, um, the six weeks of radiation combined with temozolomide. They did not want to combine the tumor treating fields with radiation because they weren't sure what the interaction would be. So they actually then randomized people to start after radiation. And about 450 people got the device and about 250 people got the standard of care. And um, then they went on to the first progression. And if they had a progression, they were allowed to continue on the tumor treating fields to a second progression. And that is because they knew from the recurrent GBM trial the median time to response to the device is about seven to eight months. Some people, patients are early progressors, and they did not wish to take away the device that, uh, before it had time to uh, have an effect. In the um, standard of care arm, they were allowed to go on to the physician's best choice of um, second-line um, treatment. The inclusion-exclusion criteria were standard. They were patients over the age of 18. There was no age gap. So in the original um, STUP trial with temozolomide, it was 18 to 70. Uh, here, everybody, patients over the age of 70 were allowed uh, to participate. They had to have had chemo, um, sorry, they've had to have radiation already with maximal uh, debulking surgery with you know, um, temozolomide too as well. They had to have a good performance status. Exclusion criteria anything that would prevent people from having uh, continuing maintenance temozolomides, such as decrease in blood counts or impaired liver or renal function. They also included, excluded infratenturial tumor because the front part of the ray would have to go over the mouth. And at the time, the company had not worked out the physics of how, being able to target the brainstem. In 2018, a white paper came out that showed how we can arrange the rays so that we can target the brainstem too as well. So that is now a possibility. So this is the results. This was the progression-free survival in the intention to treat population. You can see it was a highly significant p-value with a hazard ratio reduction to 0.63 and the, uh, with about a three-month improvement of uh, median survival. And this is the overall survival where you can see, now look, remember those Demont-Duport curves. Remember, it was 5% at two years. Now we're up to 43%. It was a 50% approval of... Um, of temozolomide alone, and it tripled the five-year survival to was up to 13%. And if you, again, if you remember the Damar de curves, there was really nobody alive at, at five years. So this was, again, a highly significant p-value, hazard ratio reduction to 0 0.63, 
Roger Stoop likes to say that this is, you know, likes to point out this is the same hazard ratio reduction that temozolomide had in his original trial and a five-month improvement of overall survival. So big gains. This was just recently um, published in 2022, so I just wanted to bring this up. This was the commercial experience that confirmed that there was, uh, in the commercial use, there appears to be like 45% improvement of overall survival, again, uh, with a, a very significant P. There was a subgroup analysis for overall survival that I like to talk with you, because when I presented the data back in 2015 at our, at our neurosciences grand rounds, um, our chair of neurosurgery says, you know, Surya, this is a very low energy device. And I think when you guys do your post hoc analysis of this, of this study, you're gonna find that it's gonna be the gross toll resection patients that are gonna do the best because they're only gonna have microscopic disease left behind. And I think that this device is gonna help keep those quiescent cells quiescent. But I can't see how a low energy device can help patients that are biopsy only and have this raging GBM that the horse is already out of the barn and we're trying to get him back in to the barn. And I just can't see how that's gonna help. Well, lo and behold, when you look at the effect size with the hazard ratio reduction, the people that actually had the best were the biopsy only in this. And that's because they did so badly with just the temozolomide alone. They still don't live as long as the gross toll resection, but they respond to the treatment so well that it really helps their hazard ratio and it really improves their survival too as well. The same thing with the older people, as you can see, almost 20% of the patients were older. And they look at their hazard ratio reductions. It's you know incredible, and much more than um, uh, than the, the younger patients too. But again, it's because just giving them temozolomide alone is not enough. And what I like to, to you know I hope you take away from this is that we build on what we've had before. We shouldn't you know expect to hit a home run with one agent, but we can combine therapies that are well th- tolerated and then add to them and improve those demodeport curves even better. The other thing to add in is sort of an internal control. It shouldn't matter if you're a man or woman, and it didn't. Both, uh, um, you know, had the same uh, effect. And it shouldn't matter if you're unmethylated or methylated in this trial because it's not dependent on uh, MGMT methylation at all to have its effect because it's an antimitotic agent. So you can see that that didn't matter either. And then as we move forward, I wanted to just talk about quality of life. It is... People talk about this device, um, and they, they don't think about it in terms of survival, but they say, well, what about quality of life? Do patients actually tolerate doing this, shaving their head twice a week to wear this device, carry around a two-and-a-half-pound device around? And so the company actually asked quality of life um, uh, questionnaires uh, and measures, and they recorded them from not only the patient, but their healthcare provider, their spouse, their child, their loved one that was helping them through this. And lo and behold, it was no different than the patients that got temozolomide. So that's something to realize. The other thing that was very important, and and when you're talking to your patients, compliance was essential. This is electricity, right? If we turn off the switch, we flip that switch in this room, lights are out. There's no half-life, nothing hangs around. So I don't know if some of you in the, car, uh, in the audience have electrical cars. It takes a little bit to get used to, right? You've left your foot off the accelerator, the car just, just stops, right? There's no coasting like in the internal combustion engine. Similarly here, there's no half-life. You have to use it. 
for it to work. And they show an independent prognosticator was that if you used it 75% of the time or more, it was a significant reduction in the hazard, hazard ratio. Also, if you use something, the more you use it, the more it will work. So here's your dose response curve, right? So if you give people, get, tell 450 patients to use something 75% of the time um, for you know, two years, they're going to get you know, a variation. And when you look, if you did not use it at least 50% of the time or 12 hours a day, it does not work. You may as well not use it. And remember, when you're using this in the commercial setting, when you're talking to your patients, you know how much they're using. You have to encourage them to use it more. But what you can also see that the patients that used it 90% of the time or more, which was about 45 of the patients, they had a had a marked improvement of their hazard ratio reduction compared to the people using it 50. So it's a dose response curve. What was interesting in this, and this was presented at Snow several years ago, um, was that those 90 those patients that use it 90% or more, their three-year survival was 30%, their four-year survival was 30%, their five-year. They had this flattening of their survival curve where clearly there's a subgroup of patients that keep on coasting using the device. And I've seen that in my own practice and we had opened up the trial. So we have patients that have had this extended survival. So that's something to think about too as well. The f another point that we were talking about is targeting it. If you target the rays so that the intensity and the power of the rays are directed towards the resection cavity, because remember, 90% of the time, the tumor recurs within two centimeters of the resection cavity, we now have the post-doc analysis that showed that targeting will help local control. And this was, uh, again, published uh, just recently um, in, uh, in the Red Journal, um, where it shows that when you had a dose that it was higher in the areas of the tumor that regressed, whereas when the tumor did come back, it was where the field was not as intense. And so we have that post-doc analysis too, so people can take a look at that. So all of this then comes together to five key principles. We know we can target specifically cancer cells and spare normal cells by dialing the frequency and higher frequency cancer smells, and then lower frequency large cancer cells. We're realizing that the normal, in, like the normal intestine, is very low and can be protected because it's not sensitive at the higher frequencies. We also know we can adjust the intensity of the field by directing the rays towards the tumor, and that the power is also very important in that sort of situation. But the compliance, if they're not wearing it, it's not going to work. There is no half-life. And when they combine the dose density, which is basically power and compliance, there was continual improvement of survival. And this is something we all need to talk about with our patients. This makes sense. This was proven. This is what you need to do to improve your survival. So finally, I wanted to, you know, I just want to talk a little bit about a case. So I, I like this business addresses a couple points. One, this was a woman. Everybody says, oh, women don't want to shave their head. Number two, oh, you, can, you know, older people, you might as well just give up. And number three, there are challenges in treatments of patients up front, but that doesn't mean that they can't overcome those challenges and have a meaningful long-term survival. So this was a woman, she had a, um, a, 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 
a left temporal mass. She underwent a craniotomy with gross total resection of the, the mass. She was IDH wild type, but she was MGMT methylated. She had a good performance status immediately after surgery. We gave her the six weeks of chemo radiation. We did have to stop temozolomide in the fifth week due to thrombocytopenia, and she struggled with that a bit. We did try adjuvant temozolomide with tumor treating fields, and she did have, she has the Waldenstrom, so that was contributing to her pancytopenia. So we then did the dose-dense temozolomide, which was the Canadian rescue regimen that uh, um, Dr. Perry had uh, published in JCO uh, some years back. And she was able to complete about a year of temozolomide. And now she's done monotherapy for about 57 months now, almost five years out of her original diagnosis without any evidence of recurrence of disease. And just as a funny thing, like when she was struggling there in the beginning, she took the whole family to Orlando. She paid for it. And, and they had a great time. They came back. You know, She was actually in a wheelchair at that time. A year later, her scan looked great. And it continues to look great. And the family was like, oh, let's go down to Florida again. And she was like, what? I'm not paying to take the whole lot of you to Florida again. I thought I was dying. I need to hang on to my money, you know. <laughs> so this is just the thing. You know, people can struggle in the beginning, but they can still do well. Um, and then talking about some of the strategies for the dermatological um, um, uh side effects. So this is a paper I like to direct everyone to. It's by Mario Lacoutre. Uh, it's in Frontiers of Oncology. It's in 2020. And he's a dermatologist oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And he really has looked at this very well and looked at what are the issues that prevent the compliance with the device. So sweating, Florida, I'm sure the people here know that these patients, you know, they have a hard time going outside. So interestingly, using like a roll-on antiperspirant gel, after they shave their head, let it dry, you roll it on, it fills up the pores, and that helps decrease that. And you want to use about a, um, um, a antiperspirant that has about 12, 12 to 20% aluminum chloride in it. Itching is another one. That's inflammation. So you can use a topical corticosteroid. So we use cabletazole, which is like a solution lotion. You can help them with GABA agonists or antihistamines to help with that too as well. Patients occasionally will get some ulcers and erosions. So you can just make sure they're fitting the device well. They can move it the rays away from the areas that will heal them up. But sometimes they'll get a secondary infection and a folliculitis. So you can just give some clindamycin lotion. You do have to stay away from creams and things with petroleum-containing products in them because they will impede the effect of the rays, and that's been shown. So you do have to be careful what you recommend, and so follow that paper, and they give some good recommendations. So now we'll go back on to Eric, which will talk about some of those issues that, you know, that patients have with accepting um, uh, the glioblastoma as well as the treatment. So um, I know you said you've been on the tumor treating field now for two and a half years. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. What has it been like for you? What's your experience been like with the tumor treating field? It, it, it wasn't always easy. This, this very same backpack that I use now so easily was so difficult for me to manage at the beginning. But humans are kind of plastic, right? We're malleable. We can acclimate. We can, we can overcome. We can adapt. We can do it. One of the most powerful points was the effectiveness chart that has been shared with me or I found somewhere that says it is most effective when you can maintain the tumor treatment field for 90% of the time or more in a, in a, in a month-long period. Um, but it's still effective when you're less than that. 
and and you know that got my competitive juices going we're going to go there and so my first handful of months were at 96 percent and then they kind of worked their way down to 93 percent where they usually are around now um but that also gave me the comfort to take it all off so i wasn't upstaging my daughter when she got married okay or to be so i have a six hour break there or instead of changing the equip the gear every three days which is our pattern maybe because of a vacation we'll change them every day and take a four or five hour break in the morning so i can enjoy some stuff and then we'll put the stuff on for the rest of the day some people talk about how it stops them from doing things and there are things you just can't do with it. I get it. But I wonder how many people are just not willing to adapt to their new circumstances. And I think that's a great place for caregivers, counselors, and doctors to, uh, to offer guidance and adapting to the new reality. It's not the, the mechanism of a TTF that is messing things up. It is the tumor that's messing things up. And we're trying to get as much life as we can, despite the tumor. So, you know, he addressed, he talks about several patient concerns. So one is information overload. You know, you just have to make them understand that there's this learning curve while using it and gradually they've become adjusted to the device. Reluctance to shave their head. I think the 80-year-old woman showed people want, they want that survival benefit, right? So you just have to validate it, help kind of normalize it, and tell them, you know, this is what's going to help you in the future. You know, patients always talk about this, about being a burden and not, or, you know, to their caregiver. And all I can say is I tell them, put, if you switch places, would you feel that your loved one is a burden on you? You don't. You want to help your loved one. I think they have to realize this is the time that their family can help them where they've always helped their family in the past. But again, you know, sometimes maybe having a caregiver pool might also help them. And sometimes people just feel overwhelmed. Do I really have to wear it all the time? And then I think he talked about taking breaks. So in the original trial, they did allow a couple days off that people, if they wanted to go to a wedding, go to something, they wanted to take go camping and they didn't want to use it, that was fine. You can kind of store it up because of the it was monthly usage. So if you kind of bank it up, what some of my patients do, and they get like 90% and then they go off for a weekend and do something, you know, they know their percentages are going to be above 75% by the end of the month. So that's something that people can do. Okay. So this is going to be my final couple of slides. I just want to say some of the future di directions we're doing um, with CNS disease. And we're trying to now um, look at the role of combining it with radiation. So Manesh Mehta, who is down in Florida, uh, has this trial open for brain metastasis. It was, it was a very natural, you know, progression from dealing with brain disease. So patients with lung cancer who have two to 10 newly diagnosed brain metastases that are amenable to stereotactor radiosurgery, half of them will go to the standard of care radiosurgery alone, or half of them have tumor treating fields given after the radiosurgery, but the idea being is that you want to prevent relapse in the brain from, you know, improving local control, but also improving any um, or decreasing the chance of dis uh, distant relapse. So the primary endpoint was the time to intracranial progression. In July of 2021, an independent data monitoring committee reviewed the data and said that the uh, continue, it could continue as planned, and we are expecting results in early 2024. 
And finally, um, this is um, the EF32 trial, which is ongoing in newly diagnosed GBMs. There were several phase two studies, two that were done in the United States, one in Israel, which combined tumor treating fields with radiation that showed safety, and F- um, but also showed some early signs of efficacy. So this trial, all we're doing is we're moving the tumor treating fields up three to four months to start with radiation. And we're hoping to prevent these early relapses, help these patients that were going to relapse early by starting it earlier so that the seven to eight months, you know, median time to response, we can capture some of those early um, um, uh, progressors and hopefully um, get the device in to help them before. But what was also seen is that there, there's new mechanisms of actions that are being investigated about tumor treating fields. And it does seem to interfere with DNA damage repair. And it, and it seems to interfere with DNA double strand breaks. And that's been shown in vitro. And so when you look at this, um, you know, the mitosis, the two of them act in multiple different stages in the cancer cells division cycle and have this kind of additive effect to help, um, you know, enhance cancer cell kill. And um, with that, I'm going to turn uh, uh, this over to Eric again, and that we'll watch a clip of Eric discussing the need to do clinical trials. Can you share um, for the audience just some thoughts that you have on the value of clinical trials, the importance or the benefits that it might be able to provide um, either for you in the future or for patients in general? Well, yeah, in, in general, I think they, they are necessary um, and they are wonderful and they are important. Um, having paid attention to a few over my, over the course of this experience. Um, and that's how the TTF field came into being uh, to be an FDA approved standard treatment was through clinical trials and clinical trials can't work without patients willing to participate in them. There are degrees of awareness, both amongst the, 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 the general population and amongst medical professionals. These awarenesses are not necessarily in line with the reality. And the ABTA is one vehicle to raise that awareness. And in, in terms of its work directly with patients um, and, and, and their support groups, um, it's a direct line. It's a direct line and it's, it's so important. But also, maybe the ABTA has a role in helping physicians um, and the medical teams remember and recognize that these patients with highly specialized and complicated medical needs were still human. Great. Um, next, uh, I have the great privilege to introduce our colleague, uh, Dr. Mami Alwalia, who's going to talk about the current landscape in clinical trials in neuro-oncology. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Brem, for the kind invitation to come and give this talk. And I would like to congratulate Dr. Jayapalan for a very eloquent and excellent talk on the role of tumor-treating fields, not only in glioblastoma, but emerging evidence in brain metastases, because several of us who treat patients with glioblastoma also take 
care of patients with brain metastases. So today I was tasked to speak about new and emerging systemic therapy options for glioblastoma, strategies for maximizing patient outcomes. And essentially I'm going to focus uh, mostly on the data that is published, but also talk about some of the new opportunities that may lie. So before we go any further, as Dr. Jayapalan had talked about, we've made tremendous progress, not as much as we would like, but still we've made a difference in lives of our patients. Our patients are living longer. Despite that, we know glioblastoma, I, I always call it the last frontier, because despite our best efforts, most of our patients will recur. That means their glioblastoma that initially, if it responds to treatment, will come back, unfortunately, still on an average between 6 to 12 months based on their MGMT methylation status or what they've been treated with. And so this is the NCCN guidelines for patients who have recurrent glioblastoma. And as you can see, the preferred regimens include bevacizumab. You can always re-challenge temozolomide. Dr. Jepelin talked about a case with the metronomic dosing, which is often used in recurrent setting. We can use the alkylating agents like lomustine or carmustine. We still have the PCV regimen, which is procarbazine, lomustine, and venkristin. And you have the regorafenib regimen uh, based on a trial from Spain that I'll talk about. Uh, otherwise, you could use the combination of therapies, which include uh, you know, systemic agents combined with bevacizumab, and there are a number of them. None of them has actually been better shown to be better than bevacizumab, though, or you can use combination of alkylating therapies along with Bev, or sometimes people will use rechallenge of uh, temozolomide with Bev, or sometimes when patients progress on temozolomide, we are not sure whether they're progressing or a pseudo-progression. We try to you know, continue with temozolomide and add Bev. Now, in certain group of patients and circumstances, you can use a toposide or platinum-based regimens, although the categories of approval for these therapies is lower. But in some selected patients, you can use drugs like latotrectinib and entrectinib, which are approved for entract gene fusion tumors, which is very exciting based on pan-tumor agnostic approvals. And then uh, more recently, we've had uh, data come up in BRAF V600 activated uh, mutated patients where BRAF and mechanibitis can be used, uh, including debrafenib and trametinib or vembrafenib and cobimetinib. And I'll talk some of the data's behind them. So this is a trial which was a phase three trial of bevacizumab plus lomustine. It was done by Wolfgang and Wick and colleagues from ERTC. Basically showed that there was no difference when you used a combination of lomustine and bevacizumab compared to lomustine. And essentially, uh, all these patients who got either of these regimens in first recurrence of glioblastoma survived on an average of around nine months. Uh, there was a slight uh, improvement in progression-free survival with bevacizumab, which we know it's mostly an artifactual because uh, bevacizumab is an antipermeability agent targeting the vascular endothelial growth factor. And there is a improvement in progression-free survival, but as you can see, overlapping curves between lomustine in orange and lomustine and bev in blue. Uh, this was a trial that got a fair amount of press. This was a phase two Regoma trial of regrafenib, which was a study done in Spain. And regrafenib is a multi-tyrosine kinase inhibitor, which basically targets the vascular endothelial growth factor, but it does target a number of other pathways, including CKET, PDGFR, amongst others. And here you can see there was uh, improvement in both progression-free survival and the curve on the right, as well as overall survival. Uh, Lomustine-treated uh, patients had a survival of 5.6 months. Those who were treated with regrafenib got overall survival of 7.4 months. And you can see an impressive hazard ratio of 0.5. 
Uh, one of the critiques of this study was that the survival scene on the Lamustine arm of this study was slightly inferior to some of the other trials that have used Lamustine in first recurrence. But this is, uh, you know, obviously a randomized trial which did show that there was a survival benefit with regrafenib in a randomized phase two setting compared to Lamustine. And regrafenib has undergone evaluation through the GBM Agile mechanism. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about that in a few slides down. So... Uh, so moving on, uh, you know, and studying glioblastoma, obviously, and, and as you uh, heard Dr. Brem talk about, you know, despite uh, clinical trials actually being the number one option, when you look at NCCN guidelines, glioblastoma is a tumor type where we actually say you prefer clinical trial uh, treatment option for patients over standard of care. If you go to the rest of the cancer or oncology, the recommendations are standard of care or clinical trials. So we are in a field where we really feel that every patient who's eligible and ready to go on a clinical trial should be on a clinical trial. So all of us who are clinical trialists working whether at academic centers or other centers, our primary focus is can we have a trial for our patient and can we offer that trial to our patients? And uh, because we need to uh, improve this figure of 11, where 11 is actually too low. And, and, and there are a number of reasons why for that. One is obviously, you know, not trials are available at all centers. We know there's patients' access issues. We know financial toxicities which come with having a diagnosis of oncology. More and more, we are doing these trials which are, you know, looking at subtype of glioblastoma or other cancers. So making, you know, criteria has the restrictive criteria more open will help in enrollment. But on the flip side, we also recognize that glioblastoma is a heterogeneous tumor. And if you have to show or, uh, you know, showcase progress, we need to look at particular subtypes or look at gene fusions or other targets. And I'll talk to you some of those. And one of the challenges in our field is new agents often are just like in oncology, they're always tried in recurrent setting because the bar's lower, you can get a drug approved with a smaller trial in a faster setting, and that's where typically the drug development has worked. And in recurrent setting, unfortunately in glioblastoma, we've not had uh, that success. So a lot of times these agents are abandoned. So uh, GBM Agile, uh, you know, was an effort uh, which was an adaptive phase two, three design, which is enrolling patients both in newly diagnosed setting and recurrent glioblastoma setting. Essentially what it does is it separates out patients who've got MGMT methylated promoter phenotype uh, and, and those patients are randomized to a drug, say X, which will be added on to radiation and temozolomide versus radiation and temozolomide. And then the unmethylated arm has radiation plus drug compared to radiation. And then the drug uh, in recurrent glioblastoma is, you know, uh, compared to agents like lomustine. Uh, Regrafenib was actually the first experimental drug in this trial. We've got a couple of other drugs that have been tested through the mechanisms that include Paxlovid and VAL-083. There are other uh, two to three molecules which are you know in the process of coming through one includes uh, vt1021 uh, which is a drug that targets the cd36 and cd47 target uh, and essentially what we are trying to do is we are looking at whether we can take advantage of precision medicine in oncology which is you know has been very well showcased in other tumor types and can we do that in uh, glioblastoma so there are two approaches to this one is the precision medicine top-down approach. And what it basically means is, say, you profile a thousand patients, okay? And then you figure out what are the pathways which are driving uh, genomically those uh, patients in the tumor type. And then, you know, uh, using the next-gen sequencing, whether you're looking at the DNA or you're looking at RNA through transcriptome, you can figure out these pathways and then you uh, develop clinical assays for prospective 
clinical trial and look at uh, you know context of vulnerability and test that. And an example of that was this inside uh, mechanism, which was you know headed through Dana Farber, Patrick, when the colleagues and uh, there were ten cancer centers around the country which participated in, in this effort. And here we primarily focused on newly diagnosed unmethylated glioblastoma. And here we know that temozolomide only has limited benefit. It's only actually a 21-day benefit that we get with uh, temozolomide. So here we said, okay, let's skip the temozolomide. So the control arm would be radiation plus temozolomide followed by adjuventism temozolomide. But depending on the genotyping uh, done, which looked at CDK pathways, EGFR pathways, or PI3 kinase pathways, these patients were subdivided into different uh, uh, you know, experimental arms. The good part here basically was that you only had one control arm because if you do design a randomized trial and you do one-to-one -one randomization, every time you have a control arm, patients actually don't want to go on a control arm. Although Dr. Brem had alluded a very important point, and, and that is that patients who go on clinical trials actually do see a survival benefit, whether they are even on the placebo arm. And this is to do with patient modification. It is to do with a more closer follow-up and number of other factors. But anyone who goes on a clinical trial does get a benefit. And there was actually a publication from University of Cincinnati outlining that a few years back. So, but the, still the focus is that patients actually want to get the drug. They want to get the experimental drug. So this was an effort which you know, looked at progression-free survival. And then if there was an improvement in that, would go into uh, you know, overall survival. And so uh, the MMS cyclib arm um, actually was presented and had some benefit in progression-free survival. CC115 was too toxic, and Neratinib was also a tough drug. And so the other approach that you can use is a bottoms-up approach. And here what you do is you see, okay, so let's say hypothetically you treat 50 patients. And we know that when we treat 50 patients with the same drug, Generically, we'll have some patients who will respond in an amazing manner, and then you'll have patients who will non-respond. So just like Dr. Jepal alluded this case where this patient has done so well long-term, right? So you would like to know what those patients are because you want to give them the right drug. No patient wants to get into a drug where they'll not get a benefit. So this approach, on the other hand, looks at a trial, and, and, and we did this uh, through uh, ABTC1402 uh, study uh, that was uh, done through the Hopkins group and the rest of the uh, collaborating centers, and I was involved in this trial because this drug called TRC102 is a base excision repair inhibitor. It was founded in the lab of uh, Stan Gerson, who was my cancer center director at Case Western Case Comprehensive Cancer Center. And essentially what we do know is that, uh, uh, and we've, we've talked about extensively about MGMT, which is a repair uh, mechanism for patients when we give them uh, TMZ. And the other repair pathway uh, is actually base excision repair pathway. And this is a drug that targets that. So Andy Sloan had uh, done this work in orthotopic xenograft models that you can actually see on the right, which is unpublished work. So we took this study uh, of combination of temozolomide and TRC-102 in bevacizumab naive glioblastoma patients in first recurrence. And here patients got a combination. And this was a stage two design. It was gone through the CTEP mechanism. And we treated first 19 patients. And our actually, uh, the goal was that the response rate needs to be increase to 30%. To just to give you a frame of reference with the drugs that we have, the cytotoxic agents like lomustine, our response rates are unfortunately around 5%. Glioblastoma is a very difficult disease to treat, especially in the recurrent setting. And when we looked at overall survival, it was 11 months. Progression-free survival was two months. And progression-free uh, survival at six months was around 10%, which is very much along the lines of what we see in regular uh, you know, treatment paradigm. However, I 
personally took care of two patients on this study actually who had progression-free survivals of 18 months and 30 months and who had a very nice survival. So we actually collaborated with Tijan and Mike Berens and his group there and we actually ran the genomic analysis as well as the transcriptome and based on the transcriptome we looked at there was a DNA damage response pathway which the two patients who did exceedingly well and you can see them uh, uh, on the uh, curves on the right, the turquoise curves they actually had a pathway which could actually designate that these patients were likely to get benefit. There was a third patient who I took care of as well actually on the study who got a borderline benefit and he was that person with the dotted lines and he had a borderline signature. The other patients were actually not expected to get benefit based on the DNA damage response pathway. So on the back end, we figured out why some patients did well versus others did not. And this has actually led to a trial that we proposed to SWOG mechanism now, which will look at this in a prospective manner. Uh, so we will treat all the patients and validate this biomarker in the prospective manner, whether can this become an integral biomarker if we develop this drug further. So moving on to something that has actually been quite exciting in the last five years, and I think will be really exciting in the next five to 10 years, and that is gene fusions as potential therapeutic targets in glioblastoma. Uh, because there has been work done by Enchirio Averone and his group. There was a paper in Science in 2013, which basically uh, showed that uh, FGFR gene fusions exist in around 3 to 4% of patients with uh, glioblastoma, and that this was found to be true even for the other gliomas. And what we have found is that gene fusions actually are more durable targets. They are actually the driver when they occur. And that's where we've seen bulk of the benefit uh, with the, in glioblastoma. And I'm actually going to go over the NTRAC, which occurs in around 1% to 2% of glioblastoma patients, but does occur in 8 to 13% of patients with pilocytic astrocytomas. And it's a very exciting uh, target. And they are a uh, couple of drugs which are FDA approved. So uh, larotrectinib is a drug that was actually was the first drug that was approved for pan-tumor type. It was tumor agnostic drug. That means any patient with cancer who has an NTRAC gene fusion can be treated by this drug. It doesn't matter whether they have lung cancer where NTRAC is around 1% or melanoma where it's 1%. Uh, in pilocytic astrocytomas, as I went over, it's around 8 to 13%. And in glioblastoma patients, it's around 1, 1.5% to 2%. So when we looked at those patients who had NTRAC gene fusion uh, positive primary CNS tumors, here the overall response rates was around 36%. So this does compare favorably to the 5% or so response rates that we are seeing with alkylating uh, therapies in this patient population. And here you can see uh, two out of those 14 patients actually got a complete response and three patients got a partial response and nine of the 14 patients actually had stable disease. So this is exciting data. There's another drug called entrectinib, which actually targets not only the NTRAC, but it also targets ROS1, which is actually a target that we find mostly in lung cancers. Around 1-2% patients with lung cancer have ROS1 alterations. And entrectinib got approved similarly. Panagnostic, so any cancer patient who has these alterations uh, can get uh, this drug, and it's FDA approved. And here, uh, you know, I'm presenting some work in CNS metastases, and here you can see the response rates are 60% with this drug. So both these drugs are potentially uh, are agents that you can use with patients who have NTRAC gene fusions. 
next, moving on to other gene fusion targets that can be there, and one uh, of those is actually MED fusions, which actually occur mostly in the secondary glioblastoma patients. And this was a cell paper uh, that was published a few years back, was a study done in China, and uh, obviously it was an early trial, nine patients, and uh, six of them were evaluable, and, and here they showed that two patients achieved uh, PR, and two patients got stable disease, which is a you know interesting uh, target and very similar response rates what we've seen with larotrectinib and NTRAC. And there's actually a study going around uh, with APL101, which is a drug that targets the MET pathway, uh, looking at uh, CNS tumor cohort as well. Uh, next, moving on to some of the other alterations that we see uh, in glioblastoma that occurs, which include the uh, BRAF V600 alterations. This alteration typically occurs in melanoma patients in a greater number. It's around 40 to 50% patients with melanoma actually have these alterations, and these drugs were initially developed for that patient population. And then we also found that these alterations occur in colorectal cancer and are also approved in that patient uh, population. And so this uh, one was a phase two trial basket study of Vimrafenib, which is basically a BRAF inhibitor. And, and you can see response rates of 43% with progression-free survival of around 5.7 months. And then there was a phase two trial of Dibrafenib and Trimetinib. And then there was the road trial where uh, Patrick Wen and colleagues showed very nice response rates north of 50%. Uh, now you can use uh, just a BRAF inhibitor, but we do know that when you use a BRAF inhibitor in a patient who has a V600 alteration, the primary mechanism of resistance is actually the MEK pathway. Hence, the combination of a BRAF inhibitor and a MEK inhibitor is found to be preferable. And also, surprisingly, when you use the dual combination, you actually see less toxicity compared to when you use one drug. Uh, so here we would go over a case, and this is a, a patient, a 65-year-old female with IDH wild-type glioblastoma uh, who was diagnosed and then was treated with six uh, weeks of RT and temozolomide followed by adjuvant temozolomide and TT fields. She was MGMT methylated and an NTRAC gene fusion on NGS testing. However, she did have grade 2 thrombocytopenia from prior temozolomide use and did also have a hemorrhage uh, in her glioblastoma tumor. Which treatment would you choose for this patient? Whether would you treat this patient with lomastine whether you would treat this patient with bevacizumab or do you think uh, you would use larotrectinib or entrectinib in this patient or dibrafenib or trametinib. So moving on to uh, challenges in glioblastoma and uh, primarily we'll uh, focus on two areas. One is the EGFR and immunotherapy and bulk of my talk is actually going to focus on phase three trials, although I'll f uh, you know, touch on the uh, phase two trials as well. So first, let's start off with the EGFR. We do know that almost 40 to 50% of patients with glioblastoma have some form of uh, genetic alteration in the EGFR pathway. And a number of these have uh, extra domain truncation that leads to a constitutive activation that occurs in around a quarter of the patients with glioblastoma. It only occurs in the tumor. And hence, EGFR is one of the most well-characterized molecular factors associated with glioblastoma. And we do know that overexpression, -ampli over amplification, as well as mutation of EGFR to EGFR V3 are all involved in pathogenesis of glioblastoma and has been subject to 
multiple targeted therapies in glioblastoma. And what we have seen, unfortunately, uh, we have treated these patients with drugs like uh, gifitinib or lotinib, which are tyrosine kinases, small molecular inhibitors, first generation. We use drugs like cetuximab, which are monoclonal antibodies, or nemotizumab, which is again a monoclonal antibody. And the trials with all of these were unfortunately negative. Then there was uh, a vaccine uh, called rendopipamid, which targeted the EGFR V3 variant, and we were very excited based on some of the initial work from the group at Duke when we compared it to the historical controls. However, the phase three randomized open-label trial in newly diagnosed glioblastoma were all negative. Uh, then um, recently this trial was completed through the NRG mechanism and ha was presented at SNOW and had a follow-up publication in Neuro-Oncology, a study led by uh, Andy Lassman and colleagues. And basically this was looking at uh, Debituximab Madodofinin. And basically what it is, is it's actually an antibody drug conjugate. And here what we are trying to do is we are combining a molecular antibody that binds to an activated EGFR uh, wild type and the V3 mutant linked to a microtubule inhibitor toxin. So essentially what we are doing is we are using a Trojan horse approach. So the EGFR pathway, we are not directly targeting it. We are actually using it to transfers inside the cell and there the microtubulin inhibitor toxin actually gets released. And uh, the, the, the phase two trial in recurrent setting actually had shown some hint of efficacy uh, but the uh, randomized phase three trial that was done in the upfront setting, unfortunately, did not show any survival benefit. So again, added to a line of trials which have failed to show therapy uh, benefit. But there is a number of studies which are looking at the EGFR-targeted therapies in glioblastoma, and you can see a number of ongoing trials which are looking at different uh, ongoing efforts, which include the D2C CD approach, where they are using a single-chain monoclonal antibody. Uh, fragment immunotoxin. It also targets the EGFR V3. Uh, they are looking at nanotechnology-based efforts. There is a lot of interest about CAR T cells uh, targeting the anti-EGFR uh, V3. We know that approach is being used in other tumor types as well. There is interest in bites, which are bispecific T cell engages. One challenge in glioblastoma with the bite-based approach is that it's a very immunosuppressive tumor. So as a result, you have a lot of T regs, which are upregulated, but your T cells, which you need, the good T cells are not that much because of the immunosuppressive environment. And hence, some of the biospecifics have struggled. You can also look at bats, which are bi-armed activated T-cells. Uh, Camilo Fajola and his group at UVA is looking at number of approaches targeting that, especially in the HER pathway. And then we have newer ADCs, which are uh, said to be more potent, maybe less toxic than the prior approaches. And then there are efforts looking at intra-arterial infusion of drugs like cetuximab. Uh, then moving on, as you know, in the last decade or two, uh, there's been a lot of interest in immunotherapy, and which has been really been transformative for a number of other cancers. For example, lung cancer, stage four lung cancer, the survival was around 5% to 10% uh, a decade back. And now we know a stage four lung cancer patients, average survival is around 20 to 25%. And most of this has been driven by immunotherapy-based approaches. However, in general, the neuro-oncology community has not enjoyed the groundbreaking studies and observations that have been seen in other types of cancer. With the exception, the rare subtype of patients with glioblastoma whose tumors have a signature hypermutation burden because of a germline bilolic uh, mismatch repair deficiency, and that can derive benefit from immune checkpoint inhibition. And there was a very nice JCO paper by uh, Eric Buffet and his colleagues from... Uh, 
University of Toronto showing these uh, two cases where they saw remarkable benefit with immune checkpoint inhibition. And uh, are some of our other efforts where we have looked at mismatch repair deficiency that arises after challenge from uh, temozolomide, we have not seen the benefit uh, with anti-PD-1 based approaches. So next uh, couple of minutes, I'm going to talk about three large phase three trials that were done using an anti-PD-1 drug called nivolumab. Uh, first one was the Checkmate 143 study, which was in recurrent glioblastoma. Second is the Checkmate 49. Eight study, uh, which was a phase three randomized trial of RT plus nivolumab. This was an unmethylated population, so we got rid of temozolomide in the experimental arm, but we used the temozolomide and radiation in the control arm. And then final was the Checkmate 548 study. This was a phase three trial. Here, nivolumab was added to temozolomide in RT in methylated MGMT patients. And so first trial was the Checkmate 143. This was where we compared nivolumab to bevacizumab. And here you can see uh, overlapping curves again. And both the drugs with uh, patients in first recurrence had a median overall survival of around 10 months. If you remember the URTC trial of Wolfgang Wig, the benefit with bevacizumab plus lomercine in that trial was around nine months. So patients in first recurrence of glioblastoma typically when they are treated uh, on any therapies, their benefit is around 9 to 10 months, and that's what we saw with this uh, patient population with nivolumab. And next was the Checkmate 498 study. This was radiation plus nivolumab, and here as well you can see, unfortunately, there was no benefit seen with the nivolumab compared to temozolomide. In fact, temozolomide, you can see the curves are slightly better, although the hazard ratio was 1.31, uh, and um, uh, basically, so patients who actually got uh, radiation and temozolomide uh, did better, even in the unmethylated setting. And so hence, if you have a patient who's unmethylated MGMT, it's very reasonable to still give them temozolomide if you don't have a clinical trial. Uh, then the final one was Checkmate 548 study. Here, nivolumab was combined with uh, radiation and temozolomide compared to placebo plus radiation and temozolomide. And here as well, you can see, unfortunately, there was no survival benefit with adding uh, nivolumab plus RT compared to, and, and temozolomide compared to placebo. But what is interesting to see on these trials is that you see the median survivals are increasing. So this highlights the point that Dr. Jayapalan had made that, uh, you know, although it's a difficult to treat tumor, but if you look at trials that were done two decades back compared to trials that you are seeing now, the survival window has moved. Yes, sometimes eligibility criteria is a little bit more restrictive these days, uh, especially with when it comes to steroid requirements in, in trials like these. But I also think there has been improvement in surgery. So Dr. Brem and his colleagues can use techniques now where they can remove the tumor more without harming the patient. We have better therapies and more importantly, we are able to take care of our patients better when they have toxicity. So I think all of this combined has helped our patients uh, further. So what are some of the challenges of immune checkpoint inhibition in glioblastoma? I think one of the challenges is that glioblastoma is a really a very immunosuppressive tumor and it is actually a cold tumor. We have this concept of hot tumor and cold tumors. So the, if the tumors are hot, which are like melanoma, immunotherapy works really well. If a tumor is inherently cold, like a glioblastoma or prostate cancer, the chances of immunotherapy working is less. And in glioblastoma on top, it's a very immunosuppressive uh, uh, tumor where the CTLA-4 is upregulated and overall the T-regs are much higher and the good T-cells are less and overall CD4 counts are lower. So Script Grossman and colleagues have showed that these patients tend to live less. Uh, and, and, and on top, a lot of T-cells which should be in the tumor are sequestered into the bone marrow as work from Peter Fetchy and his group from Duke. So we actually led a study out of Cleveland Clinic where we said, okay, a lot of our patients 
in recurrent glioblastoma are on steroids. Can we mitigate the need for steroids? Can we use bevacizumab, which is a steroid-sparing agent, and we can use two doses of Bev uh, because there was work out of Rakesh Chan's lab showing that maybe low-dose Bev maybe may less uh, cause a mesochymal uh, phenotype EMT conversion. So we looked at two different doses of Bev, but what we found was that the progression-free survival and overall survival with both these arms was comparable to each other and not different uh, compared to what we had seen with the historical controls. Uh, however, I will sh uh, showcase some data tomorrow where patients over 60 might deny some benefit with a standard dose of BEV. Uh, next, moving on to, there's a lot of interest in neoadjuvant delivery of anti-PD-1, and we have seen that to happen in a number of tumor types. We do that in breast all the time. We do that in head and neck cancer. So this was an effort led by Tim Clasey and colleagues, and they actually used, uh, they treated half the patients with uh, anti-PD-1 approach post-surgery, and half actually got it before, prior to surgery. And here you can see they did show some uh, benefit and efficacy in a small trial with the neoadjuvant approach, and this is an area of active interest in erectile glioblastoma right now, but we do know that we may need a combinatorial approach rather than just using anti-PD-1. So what can you do? Well, you can combine it with other agents. So there is data out there that the tumor treatment fields may have a, uh, you know, a mechanism where it can augment immunotherapy. So there are these uh, trials to the top study, which basically was using tumor treating fields and temozolomide with pembrolizumab and used to control it uh, uh, and, and compare it to historical controls of TD fields and temozolomide in a small group of 25 patients. This uh, data was presented at SNOW. Uh, last year, we did see a benefit, and then more recently, the data was actually presented in uh, Korea showing that you know there may be a benefit of even greater than two years. So early uh, data, small number of patients, but the approach looks promising and should be explored further. Uh, one other study that I would like to highlight is an effort with uh, my colleague here, Steve Brem has been involved. Uh, Steve Bagley out of University of Pennsylvania has been leading this study uh, out of the NRG mechanism. And as I said, that anti-PD-1 alone probably is not a very good uh, strategy for us. So how can we make it better? We can combine it with other therapies, just like we can, can you use dual immune checkpoint blockade. And one of that is using IL-6 with tocilizumab and then combining with the etilizumab, uh, which targets the anti-PD-L1 pathway. So uh, this is a trial which has a safety run-in, then there's a phase two uh, surgical cohort, and then there's a phase two non-surgical cohort, and you have a fairly complex design. But what we are trying to do with these window of opportunity trials is that we are trying to see, can we give the therapy, and what is the effect of that on the tumor? And you saw that with the new adjuvant study also that... Um, uh, Dr. Clausey was approached with. With that, obviously, there is a lot of interest in a, a, a trial that will be presented here on Sunday, and uh, Dr. Steve Brem is involved in that uh, effort, so I'll pass on uh, the mic to him to talk about this uh, exciting trial that he's been involved with for a long time and give you a preview of what you might hear on Sunday. So thank you so much for your kind attention. Thank you. It's great. That, that was a, a tour de force. Dr. Chaplin uh, spoke about a four-minute mile. I think you just did probably uh, the fastest man on earth uh, with just gave it like a two-day symposium in, in that brief time. So I, I don't, I, I just want to uh, restrain my enthusiasm for a minute and tell you uh, this is one of the most uh, exciting uh, times in my career as a neurosurgical oncologist to um, preview a um, study that uh, was published this morning 
Uh, so you guys are really among the first uh, first presentation to formally uh, present this work, and it's something that has been uh, we've worked on as a as a brain tumor community for 15 years. On it's uh, the principal investigator is Linda Liao, and so what we wanted to do is just give a teaser today. You remember when we had movies, uh, movie theaters, uh, there would be like previews. So the audience here today is like a test group preview for Sunday morning at 8.20 a.m. It is uh, CTIM, uh, Clinical Trials Immunology 27, and Dr. Lin Linda Liao, who did the original work in her laboratory and has um, is the PI on this study, um, will present that uh, work. Uh, just to give you a perspective, um, there have been 400 clinical trials that have uh, failed. I think I've been involved in about 100. If uh, I was trying for Philadelphia Phillies, a hitter with a batting average of three of one percent, I probably wouldn't make the team. We haven't done that great. Well, this one, the uh, first uh, one that in the last 30 years goes back to work. My brother Henry Brem did with Gleadale wafers and that received FDA approvals. Uh, Timozolmide with Roger Stoop and uh, tumor treating fields, which has been uh, uh, very nicely presented at, at this meeting. So what is the uh, a fourth modality? Um, this was, uh, again, the, from this morning uh, with Linda Liao. Kimur Ochkan, who's at this meeting, presented at the British uh, Snow and uh, is a leader in uh, Europe. There are f four countries. Um, over 70 authors on the full study, and uh, many people, probably some in the room, have been involved with the dendritic cell vaccine. This is the top line, um, sort of the headlines of this. Phase three non-randomized controlled trial, 331 patients uh, received vaccine either newly diagnosed or current setting. In patients with newly diagnosed glioblastoma, now, we are reporting that improves the overall survival compared to contemporaneous matched external control patients. The trial itself, in terms of design, uh, is innovative using synthetic external con contemporaneous controls. For patients with recurrent glioblastoma, the median overall survival was prolonged by several months from relapse in the vaccine group compared to the external control cohort. We saw meaningful increases in long-term tail of the survival curves in patients with newly diagnosed and recurrent diseases. As Dr. Liao has emphasized, patients in the clinic are less concerned with statistical analysis of significance and marginal benefit, but they want to be in that long-term um, uh, survivor over five years. And there is a significant tail in this trial. Survival was increased in all the subgroup analyses, but it was especially pronounced in those over 65, those MGMT methylated, um, and uh, significant residual disease. So it was a bit surprising that elderly uh, patients actually did well. And as a surgeon, significant residual disease, uh, meaning uh, up to two centimeters. Um, the vaccine is well tolerated, as mo most of the immunotherapies are, and was not associated with a cytokine release uh, storm or autoimmune reactions, and there were very rare adverse events. 
I we don't have time to go into all of this, but um, it is online, and uh, I uh, invite you to see the abstract uh, Sunday uh, presented by Dr. Liao. Thank you very much, and um, and now we can take some questions from the audience. Um, some of the um, what are the dose limiting toxicities of the uh, device, um, Doctor? Yeah, so um, there really wasn't a, a DLT. So the fifty percent of the patients had a grade one to grade two skin toxicity, which uh, from Mario Lacoutre's paper is now easily managed. Um, and then uh, for two percent had a grade three, so nobody really had a DLT with the device. It's actually incredibly well tolerated and um, a device that's very safe. That's good. Thank you. Um, next question would be, um, what's the threshold for stopping tumor treating fields in poorly compliant patients? I think that begs the question of the patient's poorly compliant. You're probably not going to continue. Yeah. I tell patients if it, it's, if it's clear that if they're not going to be using it 12 hours or not, I tell them, you know, and we can't convince them, we just stop using it. And I tell that to them. And we have a couple of patients that are like that. And, and they understand. And, and that's, they just stop using it. So, we have, um, so here's a question I'm going to give to my colleague, Dr. Manwi Awalia, who is Deputy Director for Miami Cancer Institute. I failed to mention that. And Chief of Medical Oncology and Chief Scientific Officer at the Miami Cancer Institute. So here's an open-ended question for you. Um, you have a patient with a recurrent glioblastoma. Many trials are open. How do you choose among them which is the right one for the right patient? Uh, sure, yeah. So it's a, you know, first of all, uh, you hope you're at a center where you have multiple trials open. Uh, second is, uh, you know, is the patient in first recurrence or second recurrence? And as you know, that most of the large randomized trials are primarily being done in first recurrence. Uh, so there are both advantages of going to a randomized trial uh, because that means that the drug is probably going for an approval, so it has more history behind it. The challenging part of that is it's a flip of a coin often because it's one-to-one -one randomization. So sometimes that will be a decider for some patients. Now some patients want to absolutely say, uh, this trial is randomized, so I have 50% chance going on it, and this trial I will go on the experimental agent, so if the drug or the modality is exciting, I think they like to go on the, actually the experimental therapy where they have a full chance. Uh, I would say like the last five to eight years, there was significant interest in immunotherapy. So people would not only come to us, they would say, oh, do you have an immunotherapy trial? So we saw a ton of patients doing that. Unfortunately, as what we have seen data so far, that at least the anti-PD ones by themselves with the caveat of new adjuvant approach is not going to be the case. So the question is, can you have a dual immunotherapy effort for them? Or do you have these, uh, you know, you went over the dendritic cell uh, vaccine approach. Those are exciting. Or you have uh, some of these uh, genetically engineered viruses. We did not cover a lot of data behind that. But what we've seen with the genetically engineered virus too, most of the efforts have shown that 20% of our patients get benefit. The challenge for us is that we have not been able to pick a biomarker. What we all know is that if someone's tumor mutational burden is low, they're going to get benefit from that, as has been shown by the Duke group. 
But what we do know is that if your tumor mutational burden is low, typically those patients do well. So I think that's more of a prognostic marker, frankly, rather than a predictive marker. So a lot of times it will also depend is patient, uh, you know, uh, how much of a tumor they have behind, whether they are on steroids or not. So if someone has a large tumor which is still behind or they are still on a significant dose of steroids, they typically don't do well on immunotherapy trials or typically are excluded from those trials. I personally, in the last few years, am convinced that if we're going to see some benefit in this tumor type, it will come in gene fusions. I'm very excited about that approach. So there is the MED gene fusion drug trial with the APL101 that I talked about. Uh, there is another study looking at FGFR pemigatinib study that actually we have a poster tomorrow, which I think is interesting uh, avenue. And then there are uh, drugs which target the NTRAC gene fusion. The challenge for us is FGFR gene fusions are only around 3 to 4%. Entrax 1%, and, and, and MET-PTZ is rare and mostly occurs in secondary glioblastoma. So it's a very small subtype. Um, at least small molecule inhibitors with EGFR, not too exciting right now. So, uh, I'm still excited about some CAR T-cell therapy work, and you know you have Donna Rook at your place looking at you know combinatorial approaches there, which I think are exciting. But uh, to give a long-winded answer, I think it's patient-specific, but every time I have this discussion, I actually have a patient as an active participant. I think as a physician, our job is to tell them the information which they can understand at that level and make, help them make that decision. That was a very um, comprehensive answer, and I appreciate it. Um, I'll also just reinforce some of the points Dr. Awalia made. What is missing in the field is uh, rapid, uh, interactive, specific, sensitive, clinically relevant biomarker. This has greatly spurred other fields. For example, one million Americans died of COVID, but it's still out there. But a few people are dying because we have rapid antigen tests, we have PCR, we, we, we pretty much conquered HIV and made it controllable because we can test viral load. We can see as a regimen is working, and we could stop it if it's not working, but sorry, something that's effective. We don't have that yet in neuro-oncology. This trial that I mentioned that I'm super excited about is actually um, took 15 years, hundreds of millions of dollars, and you know, and now we're getting uh, uh, the Kaplan-Meier curves and so on, but it's still, um, we're look, I'm looking for the next generation of um, immuno-oncology to be, and tumor treating fields, to be um, one that we, ha we can adjust to the patient and get an answer right away, which is what the patients want. They, um, and along those lines, on Sunday also, there are four, thank you for mentioning, uh, University of Pennsylvania has four um, presentations on biomarkers, and Dr. Christos Davosikos, his group, uh, has 10 abstracts here. Um, and has formed a very large consortium, the RESPOND consortium, using AI, machine learning, and so on, to take a very extensive database, uh, hundreds of patients with glioblastoma, get a normative um, survival, predict where the tumors kind of come back, and uh, we think we'll be using this soon for some of your trials. Uh, your, and and uh, Dr. Suyash Mohan has devoted his career uh, to developing multimodal MRI, and he published the Red Journal. He's part of that um, article. Thank you for, for including that. 
with Roger Stoop uh, to show that there's a dose response in tumor treating fields, that the recurrences are out of field, and that's what we need to make uh, skeptics uh, believers in these technologies and widely adopt these new technologies uh, because you, you need to see how they're working in individual patients. So it's a, um, an important question, and uh, thank you for, the, for your answers. Um, how do you decide on timing of surgery? Well, usually um, a newly diagnosed glioblastoma, of course, will be uh, urgent, and as soon as the patient is prepared, we, 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 um, uh, we schedule surgery for recurrence. It's a little bit more nuanced. It depends if the patient's having symptoms. Um, if we think it's, uh, again, we don't have all the tools in place, but if, uh, if it's progression and uh, it's surgically accessible, so we make that, uh, make that calculation. Um, we are always uh, trying to minimize injury, so it depends on location, location, location. We're using tools that you mentioned, uh, think surgery is safer. Um, while being more radical, more effective, using diffusion tractography and now connectome analyses. So we're um, trying to do smarter surgeries, just like smarter clinical trials. So I think that's a, what would, um, mm, is interstitial radiation an option in treatment of glioblastoma? Do either of you want to take that on? Do you, uh, I've personally not had any much yeah. uh, of uh, experience in that field. There is uh, the gamma uh, yeah. tile trial. Um, yeah, this is very attractive because local recurrence and radiation is helpful. I was part of the glia site, which is a balloon uh, and, and um, trial with, um, and uh, it, it was the the problems are it's a yin and yang of balancing. Um, risk with benefit, and the risk is of radiation necrosis, which can also cause swelling. So um, I, that trial is still ongoing. And um, so... Um, Steve, I was wondering if I could... There's a first question that sure. just came up. Sure. Why don't you take that? So there's one that says, is there a time limit for use of t tumor-treating meters, and for how long can people continue to use it? And I alluded to this in my um, my case presentation about the 80-year-old uh, woman. So you can always you can learn from your successes as well as your failures. So Tufts participated in the EF14 trial. They put 17 patients on the trial. Ten got the device. Seven uh, got standard of care. And the first person that enrolled was in 2010. He drove down from Montreal and uh, because they didn't have the trial open in uh, Canada, and he enrolled into the trial. And 12 years later, so and the Canadian government, you know, would pay only paid for Tamadar for two years. They said that there's no role for it after that. And 12 years later, he is still alive. So he's been doing 10 years of Optune monotherapy, uh, essentially. And he's, um, he's had two recurrences. The first one was taken out in 2016, and the, sur the surgeons took it out. And then he had a more recent recurrence now again. And so now they're adding on temozolomide again onto him. But one of the things to realize is that solid tumors are always trying to come back. And we had a little discussion with this with Steve. The, the tumors that we're curing are really the liquid tumors, right? The lymphomas, the leukemias, because we can do a bone marrow transplant and get rid of say, the, every single nidus of disease. We can't do that with solid tumors, right? 
Dr. Bremen, although he's an excellent neurosurgeon, can't do brain transplant yet. And I, as I tease my parent, my patients, you wouldn't want that because it wouldn't be you anymore, right? It would be somebody else. And unless somebody's giving you a better body, I wouldn't sign up for that surgery. So we have to have a treatment that can chronically suppress the disease from coming back that is well tolerated. And tumor treating fields definitely are well tolerated. People can use it till the cows come home if, you know. Um, but, and it can prevent these nidises of disease from coming back. So I tell people the paradigm is changing for solid tumors, right? We're not curing their solid tumors, we're treating it. We're not, we don't cure people's hypertension, we treat their hypertension. We don't cure people's diabetes, we treat their diabetes. And we're not curing solid tumor treatment tumors, we're treating it. And we need, you know, treatments that can be tolerated. And unfortunately, I can't keep giving chemo, it's not tolerated. Dr. Brem can't, giving, can't, can't continue giving surgery because they have you know, wound breakdown, and Dr. Alawalia um, uh, can't keep giving radiation because of radiation necrosis. But these the treatments like tumor-treating fields, immunotherapy, targeted therapy, these ones can be given chronically, and I think that's going to be the wave of the future. Just a very quick question, yes or no, because we're just at the end of our session. Uh, would you recommend tumor-treating fields for a grade for WHO IDH mutant positive legacy GBM. Yeah. A legacy GBM. So the, these trials were all done before the recent, so you know, you the 2016. Yes. So when they did a postdoc analysis on people that had still analyzable tissue, and it was about 50% of patients in the EF14 trial, it was matched between the two, about 5%, 6% in each group had IDH mutated. And they haven't done a post-talk analysis to take a look specifically, but the Canadian patient I just told you about, he was IDH mutated, you know, so there is that. So I think, you know, being MGMT methylated, being IDH mutated, these are all things that predispose one to have good response to treatment. And, and I think it definitely helps. Th so thank you. Thanks, the speakers. This activity is certified by PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, the American Brain Tumor Association. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YNM860. This activity is supported by educational grants from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated and Novocure, Incorporated.